0: you could be the best designer in the world and you can sit down next to someone who's not that good a designer, but can compassionately let a client know what they're doing. That one's going to get built. The best one will get built. So I think you've got to be able to look up and, and be able
1: to coherently sell your designs. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have my new friend, Hamish Brown, partner at 1508 London, joining us today. Hamish, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I'm very, very honored to have been invited. Well, listen, I loved our lunch we had at the Mr. C Hotel, and I wanted to continue the conversation, so I'm excited to uh, to do it here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, Hamish, we always start... The same way on every podcast is what was your first job in hospitality?
0: Well, we started the the fifteen week practice designing actually residential spaces. So we came to hospitality quite late um, as as a, as a designer. Sort of we we always loved this idea of kind of designing spaces for people. That's ultimately what we do, and, mm-hmm. and, for, them, and for them to enjoy spaces. Designing residential as privileged as, as it is, uh, you you don't get to to really design for as many people as perhaps you might like. So. It was a very kind of, it was a very exciting moment where we were asked to design the private members club and, and spa at the Lanesborough Hotel in London on Hyde Park Corner, which was uh, an 18,000 square foot private members club and spa. Uh, also voted Europe's best spa, which is quite, quite, quite lovely to, to have that. But um, Yeah, that, that, that was our first project in, in hospitality and really a, 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 an amazing opportunity for us to kind of take some of the lessons learned from residential where you really designed for people. You sit in front of people rather than designing mm-hmm. hospitality, where you're very much designed sort of for kind of business to business, I suppose, kind of guessing what people want, or trying to kind of understand how you could add value to assets and things like that. Whereas actually designing for people is quite interesting. So I think that's what they were interested in with us, was really being able to kind of bring some of that knowledge into into that into that world.
1: No, and I love that. And so for listeners, as you're hopping in here, Hamish is in the world of design, and I think a big focus on interior design, correct? Correct,
0: that's exactly.
1: Right. So you started out, as you mentioned, going with residential. How mm. did you get onto that path? Because there's a lot of people that say, "Man, I, you know, I would love to design spaces that people live in or enjoy." How did you start out on that journey?
0: Well, I mean, I studied interior design, so um, I studied interior architecture. So that's kind of um, redeveloping. I mean, being from Britain and London, uh, we now have offices now in Miami and LA for, for in, in the US, which is amazing. But, but Yeah, I started interior design. I mean, my dream was I love I love space, um, but predominantly interiors was really focused around taking existing buildings and repurposing them. We now work with new builds as well, but that was always my passion. I studied. We then went I uh, went on to to work as a designer for various small practices before working then here for, as a as a very much a junior for a large service office provider building offices for people like Deutsche Bank and RBS and trading floors like that so nothing remotely related to what I do now. <laughs> The path, the path is a long path, <laughs> many mm-hmm. <laughs> things go under your belt during that process. And then I, I built my own practice called Hayley's Benjamin with a guy called Ben. And then to 2008 crash happened. We we didn't manage to weather that storm, lost that business, and then joined a, a very young practice, that hadn't yet been named, which is called, which is now called 50 London. London Yeah, that, that journey started, there was four of us, and we slowly kind of built the practice up. And we're now 130 people worldwide with eight different offices. So yeah, there's been some major lows and some, I hope to be more ups than downs, but that's the journey I've been
1: on. So when you started Hamish Benjamin, right? It's it's January 2007, you decide, I'm going to start this. There's a lot of people who have that dream, right? You're working for somebody else, you're doing offices, which maybe is not that exciting. What made you want to start your own? And how did you start putting that together?
0: Goodness,
1: I say I was brave,
0: frankly. I was just young and stupid, perhaps. I think probably it was more... Yeah, more to the point. Ben was working for a company called Candy & Candy, who are a very well-known property development company, but they also designed their own spaces. They were responsible for things like One High Park, some major, major co-residential development schemes. He had some clients that he knew of that he wasn't working with, but blah. So we managed to kind of muster up a few, few interesting clients. And on the side of work, during our weekends and evenings, we would sit together in our kitchens or whenever we'd sketch, draw... Think, figure out how we could help these people. very, very small projects that, frankly, um, I think most companies weren't really that interested in, but we were because it was getting us started. And we, we didn't spend any money. We just put the money in the bank that we did earn. And, we, and after about you know, a year, we, we built up enough funds to be able to pay ourselves something. I quit my job first and managed those clients. He continued working to sort of test the water. And slowly but surely, we kind of built up enough courage and hopefully... Client base and money to be able to kind of stand on our own two fee. We've had that business for for about three years. We had about six employees. So for a young little thing, it was it was good, and I learned so many lessons. I mean, how to pay VAT, you know, payroll, all sorts of mistakes <laughs> mistakes were made on that journey. But generally, that's how you learn, I think. And,
1: yeah, that's no, true. And I love that part of people's journey. So as you're building it, do you remember like one of the first big clients? Like you're like, wow, we made it. This is it. Like we're gonna be. Ultra successful. Was there one that happened like that before you experienced some of the challenges later? Definitely. I think that our,
0: our first client was our biggest in many ways. It was our, well, yeah, it was in terms of prestige. It was in a building called One Nine Nine The Knights Bridge, which is literally just just in front of Harrods. It was the kind of forerunner to all the most expensive schemes in London. It was the kind of the poster boy of luxury residential in London, which is a, which is a very luxury residential place. Yeah, it was. A, it was a two bed apartment for a Guy that made his tens and hundreds of millions selling ice cream mm-hmm. in Britain. So a very fanboy and very cool guy. Yeah. We came up with this very, very cool scheme of pretty graffiti all over the wall, <laughs> which he loved Thank God, that was our first one. We I mean, then went on to do lots of other, but all residential, but yeah, that was, that was our journey there.
1: So as starting out, cause there's a lot of people who are starting out and they're building their companies that help support others. How were you starting to get the word out? Like when you made that big graffiti design, that's, I'm sure it was unique at the time for, for London. Did you start to promote that in different ways so people saw it or was it word of mouth still just client to client? How did you start to build? Well, we got, we got a lot of traction on that
0: actually on the it internet. Became a bit of a thing. And this is just a long
1: time ago, really social. I hadn't really. Facebook is baby. Yeah, like barely coming out. Twitter is just coming out. So a lot of that kind of social stuff, we haven't remotely got to virtually. There was no Instagram,
0: I think. So, you know, there was lots of, you know, lots of viral stuff that really we hadn't had the privilege of being able to utilize. I think I've I've always been a firm believer in word of mouth. I think, you know, the reality is people by people. You know, you look at all these kind of uh, TV programs where people are pitching to, to, you know, billionaires or millionaires and their show ideas. You know, the amount of times that people go onto those shows and they have a great idea, but their character is not great and they don't get investment and I think most of the time when people buy people, you know, they talk to them and they see trust in their eyes and they, they have a connection with them. And I think that's when people, people decide to, 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 to work with you. And I think, I think that's, that's something that's always stood by me. I think marketing is, is great, but there's nothing better than sitting in front of someone and talking to them honestly about what it is you, you believe in and what you do. And I think that will always be the best way to market yourself.
1: Gosh, that's great advice. and you're passionate about it. Every time I've talked to you, 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 I can feel it coming from you. I'm sure that your clients feel that, and they feel that trust when they speak with you.
0: I think passion and passion and honesty mm-hmm. are the two things that you can't you can't not fall in love with. And I think passion and honesty are ultimately what is what what people can see. And and and, and it's very difficult not to get excited when you get someone very passionate about it. So yeah, I
1: that, that's <laughs> always what I tell tell, tell our guys. That's true. And you also mentioned that you had some challenging times here with your own company. And so 2008 comes, the world starts collapsing, a lot of people go out of business, but you seem like you hang on a little longer than some. How did you decide, like, all right, it's time to close this down? Because that's a tough decision for anybody to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very challenging. You know, going back to your, your previous question, we didn't, I don't think we marketed or tread, tread the streets enough at that point. And we were behind the times. I think we just it too late. We didn't see things coming. I probably didn't read enough. I didn't talk to my friends and colleagues about the market, about what was happening. So it kind of crept up on us a little bit. And I think that's a lesson that I think, you know, I've, read, I've listened to loads of podcasts where people talk about the great side of an entrepreneur is going out and talking to people and really understanding what, not not taking every bit of advice, but just forming your own opinion, by just getting advice or getting thing and talking to people and exploring different things. I didn't do that. So that was one mistake. And I think, and ultimately, wow, We just we just didn't we did, didn't win business, and, and and I think people were getting very very protective over the money they had, and so they decided not not to renovate, not to spend money, not to you know invest in projects, and that ultimately caused our demise. We took a while off the board in terms of finding projects. We also then met these guys now fifteen away who had investment. We we originally my partner Ben and I decided to go out and try to seek investment. We thought that was a good way to get out of, get out of this get out of this hole. And seeking getting investment is not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. We approached a few people, tried to pick, and I think just the timing was very bad. Everyone was going through their own issues, right? So then to try and invest in other people, we didn't probably meet the right type of investors. So we also had a, had a lawsuit going on against us. Not something that we, we did anything wrong with, I should
1: add.
0: <laughs> uh, it was a very prickly client, and we decided to prove a point and held back way too much money than was, was, was right. And then you have to make a decision, right? Do I go in? to a hole and defend myself and try and claim back this money, or do I just move on, right? Mm -hmm. And just accept that it's gone and just, you know, actually let's focus on the positives. Let's actually just do something good here, rather than you can either look negatively and and recover debt or look forward to it and just just make more money somewhere else, right? Yes. And that's always the dichotomy of these legal things. And you kind of think, this guy was extremely wealthy, probably had an enormously big legal team. Mm -hmm. We were tiny, our business was doing that. And you think, you kind of think, well, Got to protect the cash. What am I gonna do? <laughs> what are we gonna do probably gonna lose. So I just thought you know I'm gonna move on. And that was really the net and the coffee and we decided that was it. We're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fold up. Well, we had debt. We had debt by that point because this guy had held back money and lost your last invoice is your profit, right? Mm-hmm. So you yeah, so we, we kind of swallowed that and I and I was determined not to fold the company because that's something that sticks with me forever. So, I just held the debt, and you know I was only short over a three year period, paid it back and, just, and therefore, there's no scar on my on my on my you know my credit. credit books, my credit books and and we yeah, we were able to move on, hopefully to clean cheap
1: uh you know that's tough for a lot of people who haven't been through it you don't you always expect it to be rainbows and everything glorious when you start a company, but no one really prepares you for the first time when you go through it. I went through that in my first company, and I remember sitting there some very sleepless nights like how are you going to cover this? And how are you going to do things? I was lucky enough to sell it to a big company. Well, that's I know right. how that feels, you know, that's, uh, it's intense. Yeah. So for listeners, I'm sure you had that Hamish you have some of these sleepless nights, I mean, sleepless nights, <laughs> weeks,
0: weeks, weeks. <laughs> I mean, that, my, the, the biggest, the biggest fear for me has always been about paying my staff. That always be my absolute number one. And I kind of, the way I think to where it's, it's not just one person who comes into work every day, it's their partner and potentially their children when if you've got if you got 100 staff you could double that for their partners that's 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 200 people you're, you're potentially infecting, and you put in 50 30 percent of children look at 100 130 people 210 people you know it's quite a large affecting you know if you're not able to to manage your business properly manage your finances properly so that's the thing that was most scary for me and that's something that still keeps me awake at night is being able to 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 make sure that you, you pay everyone that's number one so yeah sleepless nights. Nice. And, and do you know what my Then the responsibility level, which maybe I was a little bit naive about has for sure, that was the lessons learned then have stuck with me. I didn't let it go away. The fear of not having enough money and it's not that I'm obsessed with money. It's just, unfortunately, that's the way of the world. You have to have a level of respect for it to be able to, I think, function. I think that's, that's 100% the lesson I learned from that particular instant moment in my life.
1: And I might be guessing. You know, I want to jump to where you make this transition, but in your industry, it's all about the last project, right? That's how the revenue comes in. Is There's not a recurring revenue stream, is there, in, in this world? No, absolutely not.
0: I wish there was. I mean, we're an agency, a design agency, unlike the advertising world, which get big. You know, you get given a $300 million you know, pot for Coca-Cola or for whatever other big brand and' are representing for, for a 5 year period. We don't. You know, our projects come and go at six, 12, you know, 18 months. So you're always looking for the next thing to feed the beast. Um <laughs> It's true. It's a hungry meat and you sort of have to. You have to just, yeah. You just have to keep. You get it. Gets easier. It does get easier. I remember this. You know, the initial days of fifteen away, we we were. You know, we. we you know, I remember ne- the next month we didn't have enough business to cover the costs. Right. So you're, you know, be like, right, guys, all hands on deck. Let's get out there. Let's talk. Talk to every client you have. you have you got? with well, don't sound desperate, but just get the business in. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now, you know, we're looking at a year, year ahead, you know, for it. so it's, it's, a, it's a very different position and, and, and that, that comes from just, you know, you think about it, but the more people you meet over time, the more people know about you and therefore the more your network has expanded and so to be sure that network becomes quite powerful because, you know, people would, oh, yeah, I met that guy called Hamish once. And he's got a company. So great. I'll give him a call. And, and if you've got three people doing that, You're unlikely to win that much business. If you've got 300 people doing that, you're more likely 3,000. And just, it's just a numbers game, right?
1: That's true. I love that. I think for anyone starting a business, you have to realize that. All right. So I want to get to where you make this transition. So you have Hamish Benjamin. How does the transition start? You said you had met somebody that owned 1508. Was it a friend was it partners? How did this transition start where you create this worldwide brand that people know about now?
0: So they, there was there were three founders of Fifty Away. They had investment to start up a design company. They did. We joined a 4 year even called Fifty Away. Ben and I and some of my 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 employees, and we 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 we, we named it Fifty Away, which was the year that Michelangelo commissioned the Sistine Chapel. Okay. We didn't want to be called a name, you know, like Hamish Brown or Stuart Howard or anyone else or um, my partner, Stuart. This is part of and we so we could try to come up with a narrative, of a story that we thought might be quite new and quite fun. It also had a one at the front, which means it came first in all the search engines. <laughs> That's quite interesting. Another little thing, yeah. So that was and, and then and then no, we, we we set about trying to create a yeah, win projects. It took us a year or, or a bit longer to win projects, but we had to invest in. uh, so you know that that eased it. That that then came to bite us later mm. because. When you spend all that investment you don't bring enough revenue in you don't manage that investment properly you know you then have a different issue you haven't paid back your investor they start to get grumpy and you know that's when you have other other problems and, and that's when the company slightly changed and my now partner stuart water came in who is a former ceo of bt british telecom mass, massive massive footy 100 company he sat on the board of morgan stanley so he's you know big big big, big um, guy and he came in to really help right size us and help manage that. And he's now he's now my business partner and, and our CEO. And you know that's that's been a, it was an enormous enormous help and you know, a wise head to help kind of steer and guide us through through some challenging moments. But that was it. That was how we started really.
1: And so as you're doing this, you know mm-hmm. I've worked with a lot of people where like I think my brother's like this where he's an artist, right? He creates yeah. things. He is a genius that way. Um, but sometimes you need some help on the business side. Was that kind of how you saw yourself or did, where you figure well, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur since day one. Like how, how, did you see that? From my perspective, there's a difference between an entrepreneur and an operator. Yes. So uh,
0: uh, an entrepreneur can come with wonderful ideas that are just fantastic and can set the world alight and they're visionaries, right. Right? You know, they tend to be charismatic people, but an operator needs to, be able to operate a business actually day to day operation, you know, run it make sure, you know, HR, make sure finances are going right. I'm not saying, you know, entrepreneurs can't do that, but I think, you know, sometimes there's, there's, there's two different things. And absolutely, I saw it as, you know, I think I'm entrepreneurial, definitely. I think I think I have great ideas, I'm very optimistic, and I try and look for, for, for you know, I do not know for an answer, there's always an angle, there's always something I could try to do. But I'm a business person, not just a designer. But yes, certainly we need that. Not only, not only will we young. Um, we had not read done it before. I had a little bit, but not to the scale. Yeah, and I think I think that it was it was the best thing we did really was to bring something in with that experience and, and listen.
1: Yeah, um, I and mean, to listen. Yeah, <laughs> listen. <laughs> That's the key there. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm I'm happy you start doing this. So you've been. Now with 1508 London, you're gonna be almost 14 years, like 13 and a half years in. You have grown, we'd say, multiple titles as you've gone that way. But I want to tell us what was the first hospitality project? Because you're working with residential design, you're really doing that, which is a kind of a different world. How did you start to enter into the hospitality portion of it?
0: Well, it was the Lanesburg, as I mentioned before, the Lanesburg private was Thomas Paul. And then our first full hotel project was was it, was the, the Carton Tower, which is a Jumeirah hotel. It's probably yeah. the, pro- the most, uh, most sort of, uh, the prized jewel outside of the UAE for, for the Jumeirah brand. And it's in Knightsbridge in central London. So it's a very, very good address in Cadogan Square. And we had done quite a bit of work for them, at, you know, for some of the the... the very kind of important people in the UE and we they 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 asked us to pitch we pitched and we were very lucky to live it actually and we we put everything into the pitch you can possibly think of in terms of just energy, time. We really went for it. Um and that was our full project. Yeah. First first,
1: first, 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 Yeah so so someone who doesn't know this world and you're going in for pitch and you, you haven't been in that world really and you're going after a major hotel brand what goes into that? Are you having to front like a ton of costs and designs and ideas, or is it as easy as just kind of putting some mood boards together? What, what is that like when you're going into this the first time? The optimist,
0: optimist in me, would say, look, it's it's walls, ceilings, and floors, right? It's the same as a residential project. There are key differences. I think again, you have to, you know, when I when I wanted to to pitch for this, we had to really. Ask a lot of people what what makes a hotel important. I went out and I sought a lot of advice from different people as to and it's about curating an experience, curating a journey for the guests so that they walk in and their arrival experience is something that they go down a corridor and then they get gifted with another experience and then they have a drink at the bar, and that's a different experience. And so each time they move out of the hotel, unlike residential, which has to be a bit more kind of a bit calmer because you are going to live in it. You could be a bit more expressive with hotels. It's a bit more experiential in terms of your experiences. So, and dramatic and, and all of those things. And um, So I learned that. But the thing I say about pitching is, is you've got to know who you're pitching to. And imagine you walk into a room of 12 people and you're want to stand up and present yourself and your company and what you're, what you're going to do. I, I'd like to know exactly who those 12 people are and what, what area of their business do they represent. So you've got the cost guy. So somewhere in your pitch, you're going to to, to say something about cost Mm -hmm. and how well you manage cost. And then you've got next to him, you've got the design guy. You've got to say something about design, obviously, because that's what we do and that's what he's interested in. And then you've got to say something about programming and and delivering and and scheduling and how long it's going to take you, because that's the next guy. And then you've got to say something about fire. So you go around and make sure you kind of... So when you walk out the room, you kind of want everyone to... Yeah, I like, I like them. I like them because they're all looking at it selfish because that's the reality. And if you only focus on design, then the cost guys going to be upset and the scheduling guys going to be upset. So that, that's what I'd say. You've got to find out who you're pitching to make sure you talk to everyone and, and you
1: know, talk, talk to what they're looking for. That's great advice because you're helping each one of them make their lives easier, right? This is what you're doing in that pitch while getting your point across. Exactly mm-hmm.
0: that because they're going to point us. They'll have an eye on cost and other things. You know, those those bits, yeah. And I think you know, we try and be egoless, which is a very, very difficult thing for designers to, to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> because the reality is, there's a person that's bought a hotel asset is has bought it because they put their own money in it. They've they, they, they found an investment, they found a site, they have a vision. They might have they might not know how it's going to look exactly, but they have a vision for, for sure. For a designer to come in at the kind of twelfth hour and and try and say. Now, whatever you said, think, and done is not right. I'm going to tell you now. It's just totally the wrong approach to me. And it's all about collaboration and about listening to your client, finding out what their end goal is. And our job as designers is then to is to really make sure that we deliver on that from, from our perspective, which is about aesthetic and design. And, and, but it all feeds in to, to a bigger picture. So we have a few matches, like the products, the celebrity, not us which mm-hmm. I think is really important. I and mean, when conversing with anyone in business, I think for me, it's all about really understanding why, and especially if you're being employed, like we are in the service sector, really understanding why someone has come to you and what they're trying to do and then, and, then, and then deliver on that.
1: I love it. So after you get this, you give the, the pitch of your life. Are you all celebrating? I can imagine you're in the office celebrating that you got this one, right? Yeah. yeah. And a little bit nervous at the same time.
0: Oh, nervous. <laughs> yeah, we definitely celebrated. I think it was an amazing moment. We went into hospitality predominantly because the London residential market was was, was was going down. There was lots of legislation changes which meant it was difficult for developers to invest in London. And I said, well, look, a, resi- a residential developer is almost the same as the hospitality developer. They're buying land and they're repurposing it and adding value to that asset. The only difference is a residential developer wants to get out within... You know, as quickly as possible, 18 to 24 months, let's so. say or Whereas a, a hospitality investor stays in for 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is, so and more. Mm-hmm. So so they've got, they they are not they're not playing the same game, although the actual so I could just pivot my team here at London and they've got a different asset class ultimately, which is your you're providing services to
1: you're celebrating, you're doing this, you're really yes, just, yeah. getting it dialed in. Does deals start coming in? Because that's a big name brand that you're working with. All of a sudden people start looking at that hotel and say, wow, who designed that? Let's get in touch with them. Or are you going out and saying, look, this is what we're doing. We need to get more of these hotels in the pipeline. Yeah, that absolutely. Okay.
0: That. You know, unfortunately there are so many big names in the hospitality. It was Jane Challenge design to suddenly become a name after one hotel. And really that hotels, you start designing, it's not really built for three years, so. It's a long time to wait for the name to get out there. People hear you, it, but they're not, they, don't, they don't know if it's any good or not until, it, until it's done. So we, you know, we had to really push that, Jim. The benefit was that we could then say, well, Jumeirah trusted us. So we, you know, yep.
1: Stamp of approval kind of thing thing. you can too. Kind of no, it's amazing. And so you're in London. When do you start to expand outside of your city? Because if you mentioned the beginning, you're in multiple cities now. When do you start to grow and say, look, we got to get out of London and also get into this next city?
0: Yeah, so that was our. So we'd had a bit of traction from the Middle East up until, you know, this point, Rezi wise. I mentioned before that the reason we got Jamira is because we've been doing a bit of work for some important um, Emiratis. So Dubai seemed like an obvious choice. A lot of build, a lot of stuff happening in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Plus, from an English perspective, the Middle East looked to us for, and and, and America and other parts of um, Europe. But So we felt that it was a good place to go because there was an issue to my competition. They looked at Europe and America for design expertise Mm -hmm. and other expertise, legal systems, even financial and and those types of things. So it it was an easier sell. And I think there's a cachet about being from the UK in in the Middle East and America as well. And the the benefits, your
1: your approach, one's approach. So yeah, that was our first landing was Dubai. As you head there, very different world, very different laws. Everything is different there. How yeah. did you succeed in that market?
0: So we found, I found a, so I was traveling out there every six weeks, spending a week at a time, just seeing as many people as possible. That's my, that's the way we get, get our name out there. I, I'll tell you a bit more, I had a guy, I met a guy called Joe Changlin. He's our director of one of our regional directors mm-hmm. in Dubai, along with Anthony. But uh, Joe was the first guy there. He was one man on his own, going out, meeting as many people. And the way I would manage that, I would go out and I'd say, and I say that to all of the guys that look after our sales around the world, I travel out and I asked them to get at least five meetings a day, at least minimum five meetings a day. And that doesn't include breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you can get up to eight meetings a day <laughs> if you want. And that's just a week of hard hitting. You just go around and you talk to as many people as you can about what you can do. And you pick up, 40 new contacts at the end of the week, right? Um, so we just did that. We just kept going, and um, we had the benefit of this Jamiro Hotel we're doing in London, and a lot of those Middle Eastern community kind of go there when they really stay in London. So that was a that was a kind of help. Yeah, and slowly but surely, you find someone that's willing to willing to do 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 more. Do.
1: These are these are big hospitality projects, and so it's hard to get in sometimes because you can't. Get in once it's announced. They pretty much have everything selected. Am I right yeah, in saying
0: that? Absolutely. So, hospitality appointments are actually hard to win because the ultimately the person that appoints all the consultants prior to opening is the owner. Mm-hmm. The owner, the owner will cover. So, you actually, as our client ultimately is the owner. Although the brands have a huge say, uh, the operators have a huge say about who they want to work with. They have to vet them because it's their their brand ultimately. So you have to you have to pitch twice and win twice on <laughs> every deal. One deal you win, basically. That that's a challenge. You go around and meet potential owners, and owners are hard to find as well because they're not visible. You know, unless it's a bank or an institutional thing. You know, it tends to be you know very wealthy individuals who or families that you know own and, and acquire assets around the world. So it's difficult to find them, and if you do find them, they don't really want to be pitched at particularly. So so yeah, that's it's hard. You have to you have to you know. Like a a Native American, you
1: have to keep your ears to the ground. Yeah. And I I see because your team is good at that. I've met, you know, Darcy from your team, and she's all she reached out to me looking like, hey, what's going on out there? I'm new in Miami. So shout out to Darcy. I'm sure you're going to hear this one.
0: We've got, you know, we've got, that's exactly it. We're trying trying to get, you know, really, um, you know, entrepreneurial people that are self starters that, you know, want to get out of bed and do business, that want to, get out there and find opportunities and get excited about that. Darcy is absolutely one of those. And she's bought some amazing business and she runs on our, our North American, uh, our North American drive, you know, so that's, that's great. Based out of Miami, which is very cool. So that's that's been an amazing opportunity for us. And yeah, America being America. Yeah,
1: and, America. and so you, you have a lot of exciting things going on. You're opening in multiple cities now. And I know you can't talk about all the projects you got going on, but are there any that... You're excited about coming up in this next year that you're working on.
0: My goodness, a lot! Yeah, we did the the new raffles in London. We did the residential part of that and all well, the amenity space. So that that was very exciting. That opened about uh, six weeks ago. That's very cool. There's a new restaurant at the top of the Burj Khalifa, the tourist building in the world, which opened at the beginning of this year. Which is ten thousand square foot of yeah of a restaurant. Experiential, really fun. It's called atmosphere, and it's all about the atmosphere. And the yes, actual you know, brief was we want to taste the food and the design. So that was really cool. That was just, you know, maximalist, you know, every material you can think of going into that restaurant. Just just really, really fun. But coming up, you know, the big project we've got in, in, in the States, we've got, you know, the Chipriani residences is opening. I think this blend between residential and hospitality now is, is just huge. Yes. Really cool. Hospitality. Um, F&B brands really moving into the space. And, and it's been it be very exciting. And that's where it's kind of a sweet spot for us in many ways, because obviously our resi background plus our hospitality background yeah. means that we now have a really good insight to both of those things. So that trip we are has 397 apartments and you've got, I mean, immediate spaces, you've got you know, private restaurants, you've got a spa you've got residence lounges. I mean, all sorts of incredible, incredible things. That breaks ground in January. So that's very exciting. We're doing a very exciting project in Philadelphia, which I actually can't say any more than that, but that's, that's a very big hospitality brand, I'm working with, you know, really a major, major hospitality brand. And that's, yeah you know, that's super cool. Do you know what one of the most exciting things about going to America is realizing the huge cultural differences between city. Mm-hmm. That's that for me, it's just been so fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. You go to Philadelphia and you get one. There's a whole uh, DNA and, and, and thread and, and passion around that city. And then you go to Miami. My goodness, Miami is a completely different thing. It's huge Latin American influence, which is just which makes it so rich and so interesting. And then you go to Nashville. And there's a whole other thing going on there in LA. And it's just awesome. That's yeah, super cool. that's really fun, right? Because you get to draw on that.
1: Yeah, and I love hearing that because I, I was reading another interview that you did not too long ago that like Four Seasons, right? Like they each have their brands within a unique city. Like they, you, you know you're staying at Four Seasons, but they don't all look the same, right? Okay. And so we see a lot of hotel groups now where they all kind of start looking the same, which I hate. How, do, you know, maybe some advice to an owner right now that's getting in, they they buying one of these plain boxes and maybe they want to redo it. Do you have any like bullet points of what they can do? quickly to kind of assess if they can make this a cool place to be and uniquely local. Is there something like that you're able to do? Cause I just, I, it make me sad when I walk into some of these places. Totally. I mean, that's part of the reason
0: why we have these eight offices is to be able to properly understand culturally what's happening in, in certain locations. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's really naive for us to think that we can design things from London and, and understand the nuances of, 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 of culture. So yeah, I would say that, you know the best way to understand the culture is to go and eat in restaurants around the city, and you because that's where the locals no go. So you can understand the vibe, you can understand what what you know. And restaurants are ahead of the mark than you know almost any other type of business really. That 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 they are so on the pulse with what people are liking, what people are responding to. Mm-hmm. And if it's not a good restaurant, it will go within within six months. Good restaurants last the test of time and new restaurant concepts they, they respond to what people are enjoying so that's a good way of really understanding how a city operates and yeah and, and i think walking around it and, and, and being able to just immerse yourself in, in you know with people talk to people. You. you know we, we're doing the armani armani oh, in saudi arabia that's yeah. been an interesting one because what? saudi is changing massively from a hospitality perspective then we've got a capella opening there an armani hotel, child working with george armani which is very exciting that's cool um, we've got a what else, we've got four seasons there yeah, some really, cool,
1: really some cool projects. And you said kind of immersing yourself. So this is really an art form where you get to live in it after it's built. So you didn't get to do that with residential. You would make it and hand it off. But with hospitality, you get to sit in these visions that you all have created. What is that experience like for you?
0: I think, yeah, it's, it's uh, nerve-wracking. Seriously, seriously, seriously nerve wracking, right? Because you look at these things on paper, and you're, and your and and your all these ideas that you think that's how that's amazing. That thing is going to be amazing. Then, like, shit, is it going to be amazing? <laughs> Have I made the right decision? You know, we, you know, it, uh, uh, it yeah, it's 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 nerve wracking, but also it's unbelievably rewarding. I think the, you know, as I said, I think at the beginning, you know, we're designed for people. We designed for emotions and. I've often said there's only two ways you can buy anything in life. One is logic. Mm-hmm. I right. tell the time I'll buy a Casio watch. And the other is, is emotion. I just tell the time I'll buy a Rolex or a Patek Philippe, right? Yep. There's no logical reason why you should own a Rolex or a Patek Philippe, but sometimes you just have to, right? Mm-hmm. The same way some people like to buy you know, Prada this or Gucci that or Jimmy Choo this, and, and that's, that's emotion. There's no logic. And it, when you're designing a hotel, you need to captivate the emotions of of, of people. So when you sit in, in a hotel that we might have designed and you see people smile, laugh, build memories, have fun, that's the bit that's, that's the most rewarding, you know. And, you know, and then if the sort of people are enjoying themselves, they'll go back and they'll spend more money. Then your owner's happy. And then your operator's happy. Yep. And, you get to, and then we get to do another one, and then we're happy. <laughs> it's it's all okay. <laughs> so you see,
1: better, right. you nailed it. That's why in the operations where I came from, we had the same thing. What you and I just said—you're doing with design, we're doing with operations. We just want to make people happy and have them create those memories with whatever we're doing. So I love that they're both mixing together because that really is where the magic happens, where you can create places. That, them.
0: T- it totally isn't. I think one of the biggest, the first lessons I learned in hospitality is what a guy called Jeffrey Gelardi. He at the Lansburgh Hotel. Here in London, which is one of the biggest sort of five-star hotels in London, mm-hmm. and, and very well-heeled, everyone stared They gets their own butler. Um, basically, stands outside your door, trying to then you want it's a super, super, super exclusive hotel. And, and he was just uh, a pa- past master at, at operations. And, and you know, and I think he, you know just the minutia of things. Like he, he would say, we were designing a reception for the spa, and and he would say, well, don't put the the, the till or the the, the, the the cash, cash thing in front of where they, they're talking to someone because the moment they have to open it, they have to step back. And that if you step back from a client, you're t- sending the wrong message. Put it to the side so then they can, they can still you know, engage the same distance and still deal with mm-hmm. what they're doing here. Did you, and I remember thinking, God, I love that, that level of detail and, and you know, thought into what, how you're making someone feel. Yep. And things like in a restaurant, you know, you have a service, right, where you have to go and collect your glass right. and, your, and your curry if you put them against a wall, you've got your back to the people in the restaurant. If you put it in the center of the room, maybe with a mirror in front of it, where you can see a product, you know, or it's not completely solid, you're, you're then still engaging with the, with the people around you. I love this sort
1: of psychology of how how yeah. operates. And I love that you're thinking about those things now because there's been some hotels I've worked in that are ultra luxury hotels where the operators, I remember sitting there was like, yeah, this is pretty, but I can't use this. It's not functional. (laughs) I can't can't use this thing. It's falling apart on me already. It looks pretty, but, and I can't replace this chandelier where the little pieces are falling out of it every week. Exactly. And that's basically, you know, our our job
0: is necessarily about, you know, non-eager because for a new hotel, the first time you go there will be because you see it on the internet, you like the way it looks. It'll be design. But the reason you go back 10 times, 20 times is because of the operation, because of the service. So that's, you know, that's where we combine. I'll entice you in, but then, uh, but, but then you'll, you'll make no, it a little more
1: success. I love it now. I just saw a study. I can see where I saw it, but it's the first five pictures you see of that hotel is what makes you decide if you're staying there or not. Yeah. And all that comes from what you all are creating. And so I love that part of hospitality now. And actually, I haven't announced this yet, but for your listeners, since you're listening to the podcast today, The next hospitality mentor networking event is going to be focused on hospitality design. So we got to see if we get you down there, Hamish, if you're in Miami or not, or spend one for your team because we've done food and beverage and we've done technology. Now I want to talk about design because I think more than ever, that's important as people are buying that way with their eyes before they get places. So listen, I know how busy you are and you're in your office. So listeners, if you heard some background noise, it's because he's in his office and they're building amazing projects right now. My last question for you, Hamish, because we could talk all day. I love talking to you. If you were coming out today from Birmingham Institute of Art and Design, and you were starting on your team, what advice would you have for young Hamish today?
0: Oh, I think it would be about about listening and and looking around you and about the thing that designers perhaps don't intrinsically have is an ability to to sell. I don't mean that all encompassing, but you know, you could be the best designer in the world. And you can sit down next to someone who's not that good a designer, but can compassionately let a client know what they're doing. That one's going to get built. The best one will get built. So I think you've got to be able to look up and be able to coherently sell your designs. And that would be my advice. Try and spend some time, not just on how wonderful your design work is, but how to get that message to the client.
1: Gosh, I think that's great advice and a great place to end our conversation. Listeners, if you're driving, don't do this now, but make sure to check out 1508 London because you're going to see some of the most beautiful projects you've ever seen. And as you heard Hamish here today, he knows what he's doing. So if you're building a hotel, make sure to contact 1508 London. Uh, they won't let you down. So if Hamish, hey, somebody wants to contact you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Well, they can contact projects at 1508london.com and we'd beautiful.
1: be delighted to help you out. Yeah,
0: thank you ever so much, Tim.
1: Yeah, we got it. And Hamish, I'm excited next time for dinner. We need to make sure we have dinner this time when you come down next. 100%. Continue our conversations. Well, thank you very much once again for joining us. So, so good to be here. Thank you, Steve. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.